Hey everyone, welcome back to Tier in Apologetics. I'm so pumped you're joining us today. Today I have Dr. Matthew Ramage, me, Ramage joining me. We're going to be talking about creation. As always, this broadcast, this podcast is brought to you by you guys at patreon.com slash Tier in Apologetics. If you value what we do, uh, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Tier in Apologetics. That'd be huge. Uh, in case you don't know who, if you don't know who Dr. Matthew Ramage is, he's a professor of theology at Benedictine College, um, and we've had him on the podcast a few times, episode 205, talking about evolution, and episode 100, talking about dark passages in the Bible. So, Dr. Ramage, thank you for joining me. How are you doing today? Great, Zach. It's fun to be back with you. Yeah, I'm super excited, which I think is why like, I'm always like on fire when I talk, but like during that intro, I was like, oh, I was like extra on fire, like too on fire. Like I was just excited. Um, yeah. So this will be fun. We're talking about like the theology of creation and just some of your writing of like of recent. So tell me like a little bit, like people should know maybe a little bit about who you are by now, but like what got you interested in this topic, Dr. Ramage? Yeah. So um, I guess just growing up, I spent a lot of time outdoors. I mean, even though I had horrible allergies, you know, I was catching bugs, fishing, um, you know, I lived in central Illinois. My, my mom, uh, her parents were farming family and my mom garden, very basic stuff, you know, typical American kid. Uh, but I just always had an interest in being out in creation. And um, I studied biology for a lot of my college career before I switched to theology and philosophy. Um, and, and so, as you mentioned, you know, I've had an interest in the history of life evolution and how that intersects with theology and scripture. Uh, but really, I live in Kansas. I've, we've lived here about 15 years now, and uh, I have hay bales behind my backyard. I have my own chickens. I, I have a little orchard. I, I just am out in creation all the time, and it's really a pathway to God. It's a traditional um, approach. God wrote two books. He wrote the book of the Bible, but he also wrote the book of creation, as the medievals would say. And so it really is a way of knowing God. Uh, it's an apologetic even, and as St. Paul says, right, that you look at the world and you can see God exist. And, and really, I think even psychologically, we all need to get out in the green and, and like be in reality. So just pretty human things, you know, that have always attracted me about it. And the more I have, you know, have my kids and grow up, we go hiking and there's just a fulfillment in nature. But it's been somewhat neglected in theology off and on. And, and so it, it's good to recover it. And especially when it comes to care for creation, uh, I, I think that you talk about in America today, you know, it, it, it's very divisive, the whole issue of the environment. But I want to share some thoughts um, on that. And it'll be fun to talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing before you share your thoughts is like, I wasn't prepared for this, but I think you're so right on about like this way of like experiencing and connecting with God and things like that. Like for me personally, I grew up in kind of like that environment where like we'd be like taking care of chickens or like cutting firewood or mowing the lawn. And I hated it so much growing up. Like I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. I was like, why are we doing this? It's such a waste of time. Um, but then I had my own experience, like turning the corner, even like this past year. Um, I live down in Virginia now and I planted my first garden by myself. And like, it was like, it all came back to me. I'm like, wow, I feel like I'm like out, like out in nature, which is like, it feels so good. I'm connecting with God through this. And there's just such a beauty to it that I never realized. And as you were talking, I was like, yeah, this is just so right. Yeah. You know, it's one of the key features for me is when you're out in creation, you submit to its rhythms. You can't control it. So it's really almost a, an analogy or metaphor for grace. You know, you put in all of your effort, but at the end of the day, we have Japanese beetles arriving right now. They usually come at the end of June. They could decimate your fruit trees. Um, you can do everything right. And then deer come and eat your cherries. Or, um, you know, you go on vacation and there's a drought and everything dies. So it's really fascinating how you really are at the mercy of nature. Even as, as humans, we till and keep the garden and we, we have some control over it and we have this blessing to be the image of God, it, it really humbles us. And it makes us realize that we're truly creatures and that God's in charge when we immerse ourselves in the natural world. Mm, I'm into that. Um, so let's start like unpacking this. Like, do you think that there's like a relationship or maybe you could even say a covenant between like human beings and the natural environment? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, I do a lot of my work uh, on... Pope Benedict the 16th, the last Pope before Francis. And 
he he was a scholar of creation, spent so much time on it. And I also spent a lot of time in Thomas Aquinas, who's sometimes called St. Thomas of the Creator. He spent so much time reflecting on creation. And um, there was this line that, that, that Pope Benedict said many times as I, I read him, and he said that mankind has a covenant with the environment that should mirror God's covenant with us. And it struck me at first as weird, covenant with the environment, what is that, you know? Um, but then I got thinking, like, let's go back to scripture. And I knew it was early on. I just had to kind of pick my own brain for a few minutes. And I thought, duh, Noah, you know, after the flood, Genesis nine, they get out and God says several times, I make a covenant with you and with every creature. And he calls it an everlasting covenant. And I, I just wonder whether we take that seriously enough, you know, because I think we're used to pointing out, well, humans are the only rational animals, um, only we can have an overt relationship with God to have a covenant an exchange of gift between ourselves. We have to have freedom and other creatures don't have freedom, you know, but it's biblical. Right. Like, so then the question became, well, if it's biblical, then what's it mean? You know, I, I'm not in charge of scripture. I have to understand the scriptures as best I can. And so I started probing the ancient church on it and it turned out they were all over the topic, you know, is, is that all creatures are caught up in this drama of Israel and then of the church and of Christ. And, uh, and that he wants to bring all of them to himself in some way. And there's a lot of mystery in there. I'm sure we can talk about of what's that even mean exactly. Um, but yeah, if they're members of the covenant, then, then mankind has a role in that um, as a, as a mediator. And we could talk about Genesis a little bit more, but man, Adam as the, the priest of creation as envisioned by the sacred author. So yeah, in short, um, it's biblical, it's in Hosea, it's in Jeremiah, uh, it's in Isaiah, and really it, it's all the way to the end with revelation with every creature in the end pre praising God, right? So it's fascinating. Mm -hmm, for sure. Um, what do you think, like, what does this covenant like look like? So we're looking back to like Noah, um, and like there is this covenant between like Noah, Noah and like the rest of creation. It seems like maybe like suggested that there's a covenant between like human beings like us today in creation. Like what does that covenant like for us kind of look like? Yeah, no, I, here's the, I kind of raised my own devil's advocate thoughts first. Like, okay, so you go out in nature and it doesn't seem to have a covenant with you. It wants to kill you. <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. and uh you know like i'm pretty sure our house cats would eat us if they were big enough but um and and you know you, we're just in south dakota and you know you're amidst 120 bison they don't care you know mm -hmm. if you get in their way they're gonna hurt you uh so my kind of own objection was well the covenant is, is this this mutual exchange and it's an agreement and all these things and, and then also from the other side you don't kill people in your covenant. So if we are able to eat meat, then how can we are in how are we in covenant with them? And uh, not just animals, let alone plants and other things. So um, yeah, so one of the things I've kind of found, I, I wouldn't call this definitive, is just thinking through uh, like how how are we in covenant, right? Well, um, it turns out that when you read people like Thomas Aquinas, they'll say that their end of the bargain, if you will is upheld just by living their natures. They don't have free will, but they glorify God just by being. And so one of the, the major themes that I, I've really seen in the church fathers from the beginning, and it starts with Jesus, but you see that each creature reflects God in its own way. So, uh, you know, the eagle and its vision uh, reflects the divine wisdom and knowledge. Um, and uh, actually a, a caterpillar popped in my mind. I found... St. Basil, the, the great talking about caterpillars and their cocoons being an image of resurrection. And going back to Jesus, we have, right, um, unless the grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it bears no fruit. John 14, 12, I believe. Um, and then Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talking about the seed and the terrestrial body that has to die and rise anew. And, and so it's interesting that like, every creature in some way, even the strange creatures reflect God and, and maybe more difficult to think, well, how does a mosquito reflect God? Uh, but they all enter this covenant, not by 
freedom to choose to love but by virtue of just fulfilling their own natures and mm -hmm. we have the freedom so we have to actually choose it and for our part the way it looks with other creatures seems to be this that um we have to treat creatures according to their natures so you know uh, uh, let's just pick pigs uh you know i, I, I love being a, a new covenant Jew, right? A Christian, we can eat pork. Uh, God bless bacon. Um, mm. But you, you, it means you shouldn't just treat the pig in any way whatsoever. You shouldn't torture pigs. You should give them proper room, proper nourishment. Um, you can make the argument you should even let the animal live a reasonably long enough life, right? So uh, in Leviticus, there's a, a line about not boiling a kid in its mother's milk. You know, there's certain cruelty items that we should not engage in because we're Christians or, you know, fishing last week with my kids, they were kind of distraught when we were catching some pretty small bluegill and they would sometimes swallow the hook and I couldn't get it out and I killed them by accident, you know, and mm -hmm. um, we, we shouldn't just torture fish though, right? We shouldn't treat them in any way whatsoever. So as stewards of creation, tilling and keeping the garden of the earth, we have that responsibility and it's sacred really when you had to take life, it's pretty powerful um, that, yeah, this is part of our nature. God allows it. Um, and yet you, you shouldn't just be wanton about the way you go around taking creatures lives. Mm. So when we're thinking about creation in this covenant, one of the things you're thinking about is like going back to this idea that like we have these, like, like each creature, like, images god and or like maybe like the covenant mm -hmm. like in some sense like we can look at like um the death and like new life and like things like this through like animals which is interesting because also like i have like tim keller a lot in the back of my my mind recently and like he would do that with like sec a lot of like secular ideas like people like lewis would say hey look at the pagan myths and you're also saying like almost like with creation we can also almost do that and see with animals um and these other beings like this like cycle of like death and resurrection and, and whatnot yeah, absolutely. And, and like I said, I think it goes back to Christ and Paul. They, they're already doing this, um, looking at the analogy of nature and seeing how God is reflected in it. Like, like Paul says in Romans, right? Like from the very things he has created, we should be able to know his invisible essence and his power, right? Like, so that's been actually a proof for God's existence from the ancient church, heck, all the way back to Aristotle in the pagan world. I, I love you mentioned Lewis and the myths. I think we probably talked about that before. He always had such a great appreciation for God preparing for his incarnation and revelation through the natural world. And Christ uh, was the true myth, right, that fulfilled all mm. the, these, uh, let's call them visions or dreams that were getting there. And he had to purify them, too. But the thing about nature that's so great, even distinct from myths, is that it's kind of directly from the hand of God, if you will. Sure, it evolved. But it, it doesn't have any human sinfulness that's obscuring it. The human sinfulness is in our vision of it, but it's, mm -hmm. it's like, it's already radiating God. We just have to have the eyes open to actually see it. And, and some of those creatures are harder than others. I think of a funny one with Lewis. I just remembered the other day, actually a colleague brought it up to me. It was in the problem of pain. And it's been a long time since I read that book, but he brought up mosquitoes and he says something like this. I went back and looked at it. It was, you know, how does the mosquito reflect God? Are you kidding me? And uh, Lewis said something like, he, he's got tongue in cheek. He's saying, well, uh, the mosquito may end up uh, reflecting God in the afterlife by um, being something that the, the, the soul in heaven rejoices in, but it exists and, and becomes hell for those. It, it stings those in hell. It kind of reminded me of the great divorce a little bit, just how you know, it's how you respond to a thing that matters. Uh, so the mosquito as such has nothing wrong with it. But how are you going to respond to it? There's a way of glorifying God by beholding it, doing its natural laws, but also being on the receiving end of it. Anyway, he does a better job than I just did of explaining it. Uh, but the point would be that everything, even shoot, this is really going to sound a bit odd, but even dung uh, is part of nature, right? So um, like why dung? I, I, but you don't have, um, I'm thinking of my garden right now. Uh, with my chickens, I have crazy good 
um, tomatoes growing right now and sunflowers. Also, they fertilize the weeds quite well. <laughs> but um, it's, it's paradoxically, it's through the process of digestion and poo that the glory of the other life comes. And, and there's the teaching of Christ, right? That the seed has to die in order to bear fruit. And then pruning, oh my gosh, like also from the gospel of John, there's a paradox. I don't know if you've had to prune much, but it, it's so hard to prune. I, I, I think of my trees, I don't want to cut it. I want it to grow. But then the funny thing is, if you do it right and prune at the right time and the right amount, like not cutting more than a third of it off, then it actually makes it grow more. And, mm. and there's the spiritual life too. Mm. Wow. There's so much here. We could just like, look at like, like trees. How do they manifest like the glory of God and like rocks and like dirt and things like this. Um, so it seems like then like when we're thinking about this idea of like a covenant or like relationship between human beings, um, that this isn't just about like animate creation or we're thinking about like, you know, like a chicken or, even a mosquito or like a black bear or something like this. Like we can also expand this into like inanimate things, like say like a rock, like how would you say like, could, how does a rock like manifest like the glory of God? Yeah. Um, actually we're big rock people uh, in our family. And I'm thinking of, uh, I came back from South Dakota with a number of different kinds of rocks and um, we live on the Missouri river pretty much. And uh, we'll go rock hounding. And so last week on, Father's Day or whenever that was a couple weeks ago, I um, wanted to go out on the river. So we went and found some fossil bivalve seashells and some other creatures, some ferns and things. And where I live, it's the Pennsylvanian era. So it's 300 million years old rock that's by the river. You go up further in Kansas and you have Cretaceous uh, period, a little bit younger, uh, closer to us, but you have mosasaurs and various kinds of dinosaurs out there. Um, kind of cooler things, bigger, uh, but actually younger than where we are now. Anyway, the point of that is, is that going out there, just it, the rocks themselves manifest how powerful God is, God's patience and taking those hundreds of millions of years to form them, his um, divine pedagogy, you know, how long he took with Israel for millennia to teach them. If you think about it, some environmentalists, some environmentalists would call this overly anthropocentric to man-centered, but in a sense, that little sea creature, which looks like a clam you would find on the beach today, lived in some sense in order that my six-year-old might discover it and rejoice in its beauty today. Mm. Um, so that, and the very colors of them, um, we, we've just gone all over the country, uh, you know, it, like the, the yellow rocks that you see, uh, Paladuro Canyon, Texas, or, um, oh gosh, uh, uh, um, the uh, Badlands National Park in South Dakota, that yellow rock is really cool looking. So you could look at it and say, oh, cool. But then you realize it was an ancient jungle. And then you had an ancient ocean below it. And that all that color comes from dead creatures. And then, of course, you get uh, petroleum and all kinds of things from that as well, fossil fuel. Point being that just rocks themselves could seem very boring and dead, but they're formed a lot of times from living things or from very crazy, powerful things like volcanoes with igneous rock. And there's a biblical precedent to this. Um, so in Job 5, it, he's told, you know, you shall be in league with or in covenant with uh, the stones of the field. It's not really clear what's being affirmed there because I think it's Eliphaz speaking. But anyways, one of Job's friends who are supposed to be wrong on the book's own terms, they're trying to comfort Job. But it's interesting that it seems to echo an ancient piece of Israelite wisdom that the covenant extends to everything, uh, even inanimate creation. So it's all part of God's plan, in other words. And in, in heaven, God willing that we get there, God will somehow transform all of that if scripture is to be believed uh, and, and make it all present in some way uh, in, in, in the end times. Mm. What do you think about, because I feel like, the, like there's a, you could point to like, there's so much beauty in creation when you're looking at like 
animals and trees and rocks and flowers and there's so much beauty and like we can look at that and kind of make sense of like um seeing like the love of god seeing this covenant like seeing christ through this how do you make sense of say the suffering uh, you could point even like back to 300 million years ago um, or today, like there's so much like within like this ecosystem, so much like suffering, death, predation, all these things. How do these fit into like making sense of like the theology and like create the world of creation? That has got to be one of the most fascinating questions uh, that there is, in my opinion. Um, mm. I think we talked about it a little bit in our evolution discussion, but it, A, I don't remember what we said. And B, <laughs> there's always new insight to be had. Yeah. And, and, and so, um, you know, it comes to the, like, if, I, I just love, you know, adherent apologetics. So thinking about that, like if you're going to do apologetics to, with a view towards what does it mean to adhere to the faith and live the faith? I think one of the most common um, objections to the faith throughout history, the problem of theodicy, how do you justify God in light of evil? So it's, it's like the most ancient problem raised to the faith. And I think when you look at the, the evolutionary history of life, the role of suffering and death, nature, red and tooth and claw, it just really underscores, it exacerbates the problem. It's nothing new as a theological problem, but it really brings it into focus that, that yeah, this was part of creation well before man ever came on the scene, like Thomas Aquinas says. Now, Aquinas thinks that humans were exempt from it until sin. And that seems to be what Paul thinks as well. But every other creature was dying long before we entered the scene of history. Um, so, uh, yeah, well, how do you justify that? The short answer is, I really think it's only Christ. I, I, I think you could be like, well, the good that comes, you know, like you learn new things and you had to have free will. I get all those, those are good arguments. I really think at the end of the day is that suffering is in the world to release love. That's a, a line I'm stealing from the, the old blessed Pope John St. Paul II. Um, that suffering's in the world to release love. I think you look at the great Christian believers throughout the ages and, and you see that that they, they view suffering as redemptive. I love Paul in Colossians 1.24, where he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, it sounds scandalous. In my flesh, I make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ on behalf of the church. There's no doubt about it that Christ's sufferings were all sufficient. Um, he died once and for all for our sins. But there's something that we participate in through our suffering. And and that suffering, it, it de it, it, it decenters us from the world. Uh, we're the center of the world. You know, it, it gives us opportunities to share in Christ's life um, to, to kind of participate in his own redemptive activity. I think of it like a parent, you know, like Christ, he could do everything himself if he wanted to. Um, just like me, I, I'd be better off washing the dishes myself, uh, doing the laundry, uh, my wife and I ourselves. But why do you let the kids do it then? Why make them do it? Well, they actually slow you down. They make it more painful and all these things. <laughs> but the, the goal of it is that it gives them the dignity of learning how to do it and being agents in their own terms so they can become adults. And same thing with the chickens. You know, the chickens are a great example that my kids are like you were when you were young too. And I was the same way, I'm sure, which was like, yeah, I don't want to do this stuff. I do chores and it's boring and annoying and so, but the fact is, yeah, they had to go water, feed the chickens, um, but they also get to go scoop up eggs and, and they mm -hmm. get the beauty of that. But in order to achieve the beauty, you have to go through the difficulty. And uh, I don't know, I, I used to be a runner before I got lupus and I couldn't, you know, I had to have all these joint replacements, but um, the, the no pain, no gain element of running or really any sport that you want to be good at it's uh lewis talks about this also it's there's like a blessed pain there's a difference between miserable pain and blessed pain no pain no gain pain and and it, and it turns out that like you go through a trial with a friend you go through some mutual suffering together you end up if you live it right closer because of it not despite it so anyway, the short of it is, and my thought anyway, it seems to be that Christ has allowed all this 
for releasing love into the world. And because as some fathers of the church would say, we need a remedy for our sinfulness too, ultimately kind of mm-hmm. almost foreshadowing man in our sin. It sure keeps you in check when you have to realize the futility of this world and that, uh, you know, not everything's all about me. So those are some thoughts I have on it. We could keep going on and on, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, one thing I'll add on and maybe like giving your thoughts on this is something that like looking at like my reflections and notes I have in the problem of evil is like thinking about like interconnectedness. Um, mm. Again, I'm not like, oh, well, this is why like there's been like 300 million years of animal suffering. Um, but it's like something that I think like can help you like see it a little bit more from like a, like a Christian perspective. Um, and it's something that like even like I read the book, The Fortunate Universe or A Fortunate Universe by um, Luke Barnes. And I think it's Durant Lewis. Um, and they're not like the theologians or philosophers, like they're scientists. And they talked about like, even like the idea of like there being like algae or like tiny marine animals. Um, like when they would like die and get trapped between the rocks, they would transform into like oil, which we use today. And like, there's value there. Um, and even thinking about like animals who like die and provide food for others, furthers the evolutionary chain. Like even with like an interconnected, like creation, thinking about the chickens, like, like we had growing up that would get killed by like raccoons or foxes or whatever. Um, their deaths help fuel the story of like this world and this planet even further through their deaths. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a line that I, I think there's a few ways to put this is that creation has a structure based upon Christ's paschal mystery. It's a paschally structured creation, or you could say it's just Trinitarian structured. If you think about the, the fundamental ground of our existence, the Trinity, the Trinity is a communion of self gift. And there's no pain in God himself. Christ in his human nature suffers, yes. But it, what the Trinity is, God's own nature is complete outpouring of self, right? Uh, so much so, so that in the case of the Father and Son, their gift of self spirates the Spirit. Um, so in, in like an Orthodox Christianity from the early creeds of the church to today, that's, that's what the Trinity is. And so it's fascinating that creatures reflect that, especially man as the image of God. And, and it's, it's interesting, too, that like those creatures have no say in it. They just de facto, they just do it, right? Um, and we are blessed to have the choice in how we're going to respond to it. Our suffering is worse because we can understand it, but it's also better and redemptive because we can understand and choose to accept it. But I, I love your example of the algae and all these things, right? Like the death of those creatures has made fuel for us and, and even from the, the most basic things like that lettuce plant is alive in my backyard and mm-hmm. I try not to kill the whole plant but part of it at least has to die or other ones the carrots you got to kill them like, I mean carrot you can't just like eat part of the carrot really you got to pull the whole thing up and so that that animal or that plant has to give its life for us or Oh my gosh, you get down to the things that no one knew about until the last hundred years, like the millions upon millions of bacteria in our guts that are dying and coming to be all the time in order to keep us healthy, um, Mm -hmm. that they have to go through that life and death. Or if one likes to, you know, alcohol or anything that the yeast are living and they have to die to make that. And for quite a while in different periods of human history, our survival depended on being able to have, you know, beer to um, not have bad water that killed you. So if not, even though I'm not a big beer guy, it's fascinating to me to think about even those things I don't care about, or I find uninteresting are crucial bread, same thing. Mm -hmm. And I love how like you, Dr. Image, like in the beginning, you like you pointed this all to Christ. Like even as we're talking about like the suffering, like we're we're pointing out like this like this dying, bringing forth this, dying, bringing forth that, and like it seems like it all like we can look at like the ultimate example of that of like Jesus Christ who like died for the sins of the world so that we can have eternal life. Like the ultimate example of like death to life. Um, it just seems so apparent when you were talking. I was like, wow, this is just like right there. Yeah, and maybe this is because one of the first people I ever read and read so much of Christianity was C.S. Lewis, but. It's like so unsurprising, as he would put it, because you saw that in the pagan myths, you see it in nature. 
So it shouldn't have struck us as a surprise, really, that that was what God himself was going to do. And yet it surprised us. You know, I, I get mm -hmm. it. I, I wouldn't have been any smarter or more spiritually prepared than the apostles were. But it's like God's been telling us the whole time, this is the heart of reality, you know, that, that the grain must give itself up and go down to the earth and die to bear new fruit. And you have to be pruned in order to grow. And, and then that's in nature, the book of nature. And then Christ reveals it as well. And he told us it and then he, he actually did it. Of course, I don't think it makes it necessarily easier when it comes to living it. Um, definitely no one just finds death easy just because you know it's God's plan and to raise us from the dead. Uh, and sin too. I, I think of the early church had an ancient hymn that was prayed at the vigil of, of Easter and, and, and still is in the Catholic church whose liturgy I sometimes go to on the night before Easter. Um Oh, happy fault, it said, oh, necessary sin of Adam, which gained for us so great a redeemer. It was interesting, like, happy fault. What are you talking about? And then, um, so you see this in Paul as well, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And I think that's fascinating with sin, but also suffering, that if we're open to it, more grace abounds because of suffering. So you don't seek it out on purpose, or you don't want to be... Uh, masochistic right but i don't know my own personal journey i've had this lupus disease since 03 and you know i've had a kidney transplant joints replaced eye surgery this eye doesn't work um you know everybody has their sufferings when you have like my dad died people have family members die they lose their job they have psychological suffering and you don't want any of it and you might not wish it on your worst enemy and yet, even so, it, it's, it's through that, that if you persevere, you really find out who you are and, and you share in Christ's life more because of it. And then there are the weird times when the suffering, it's actually traceable to the good that came from it. Like, here's a really random one. I won't give you the whole details. I'll take the whole rest of our time. But so I was studying actually thinking about becoming a catholic priest i was in rome in 03 and uh, as you know catholic priests are celibate and that's a hard thing to pull off christ did it um and god god bless all the, the people who can do that now i got deathly ill spent five weeks in an italian hospital they couldn't heal me it was really a bad situation almost died blood clots all this stuff i came back to the states eventually where there was better health care they figured out what i had I ended up going to a few different places for school and grad school. And I ended up um, at this small Catholic university called Ave Maria in Florida. And there my wife and I started dating. And now here we are. Uh, that was 07. We got married. So 16 years later, we have seven kids and we live in Kansas and I have a pretty cool job. And here I am talking to you. I bring that up because if I had not had the lupus, I probably would have kept on that path. I'm sure it would have been a fine path, but it, it's fascinating to me that I can trace the very existence of my seven kids <laughs> and my marriage mm -hmm. to having had to go through all of this suffering, which got me to point A to point B to where I met my wife. There's mm -hmm. more details than that, but it's, it, I met my wife because of my pain. Mm -hmm. So it's nice when the Lord gives you that much clarity but even when he doesn't you know and someone's suffering for whatever kind they they have all i can give people is look the lord has a plan for this and it may be horrible right now and for a long time but if we're christians then then this too is part of his path for your redemption you know mm. do you think you could like even describe this as like the rhythm of like creation like where we have this idea of like well there's death that we see all throughout like the world and creation and whatnot um and this brings forth new life and there's this rhythm of like death to life death to life death to life um that like reaches yeah. like its peak at jesus christ and we see it all throughout the world as we keep on progressing here in 2023 yeah it's almost like a musical analogy um i haven't used this word before but i'd almost call it like the beat you know that mm. the 
it um and it, death to life death to life it, it's a it's a constant drumming and marching on another angle on that is if you think about it you know i actually have some kids screaming upstairs i can't, hope you can't hear them too much but in <laughs> uh, a little quick parenthetical uh, we had some loud kids in church a few years back and one of our friends came out after church and said uh you know um God must love noise or else he wouldn't have, you know, had children be like they are. And then, anyway, the point <laughs> is that you got to have the screaming and everything if you're going to have kids. Okay. But mm -hmm. back to the, to the question though, is yeah, the rhythm or beat. So I think about, uh, as you can see, I, I used to be a guitarist. I can't hardly play my joints get all maligned. And, but anyway, um, in music, you'll have some, songs that are more of a minor key uh, almost feels sad or negative right or you'll have um tension moments and again in, in rock and roll blues the like the one four five pattern very basic but like the even if you only have three chords in a song if you hung it on the second chord and just stayed there you'd be like ah, ah, get around back to the original you've got a circle back but the, so the tension in music can actually contribute to its beauty or a minor note or chord or even dissonance can contribute to the whole you wouldn't want it for its own sake it may sound even grating or uh, annoying on its own but it, it's interesting that that that's like that negative if you will or, or downer element is the the role of suffering i think you could say in creation um, I don't know if you've ever read this, but everybody knows Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, but mm -hmm. he wrote a, a longer, uh, not longer, but uh, I'd say for me, at least harder to access book, The Silmarillion. And it has this interesting creation narrative at the beginning. He's, he's taking Genesis and he's weaving in all of our later knowledge of Christianity. I won't spoil the whole thing, but the basic gist of it is in its mythology it has the, the high god is named Iluvatar. he starts creating the world by singing it into existence much like aslan does in the magician's nephew from lewis and he, as he's singing it into existence some of the the lower gods or angels um start striking dissonant notes they're trying to ruin it and spoil it but then what the high god Iluvatar does is he actually ends up weaving the negativity back into the whole and makes the whole composition greater because of what those bad angels did. And so clearly what Tolkien has done is he's just taken the fall of Satan, evil and everything we know about and shown how even that we don't want it for its own sake. But Satan can't do anything to mess up God. You know, uh, he can't hold heaven hostage, like Lewis says in The Great Divorce. So it, he, he being God, is able to take all negativity, death, suffering, every sin, and weave a greater composition, a greater rhythm because of it. Mm. One thing I'm thinking about, Dr. Ramage, that we haven't talked about, but I think is important with creation is like the fall. Um, obviously an important part of the biblical narrative is going back to Genesis, the story of the garden of Eden, and there being like this fall from like, from God, um, and from Eden, uh, how does, like, how do you like make sense of the fall and like your theology of creation? Yeah. So here's what I do on that is for people. I tell them here are a few options to look at it through is I don't think anybody has a definitive answer. I have a strong opinion, not going to lie, but um, I like an image from the, the great G.K. Chesterton. He says that Christianity is like a big playground with high walls around it. The, the high walls are the, the dogmas, you know, the revealed teachings. And those are to protect us. And, you know, like if you start denying the divinity of Christ or, you know, anything like that, then you fall off the wall. So I picture like a mountaintop playground with high walls and mm -hmm. fall off but in there there's a fair amount of playground um and so you you know you can hold a few different views or I, I think of augustine who had the famous principle we should all have unity in essentials freedom or liberty in non-essentials but in all things charity okay having said that 
the most traditional approach uh, to this issue of the fall and death and suffering would be encapsulated by Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. And that is that when God created the world, he created man not to suffer and die. We were immune from all of that. Uh, and, and the tradition called those the preternatural gifts, the gifts that bring you beyond nature, right? So that man in the garden had no pain, no suffering, et cetera. Um, and that when we sinned, that you want to call it the cloak of grace or if you want to call it the preternatural gifts, whatever you want to call it, was removed and we started to have suffering and death. Interesting thing, though, I find this tremendously fascinating. He had no idea of evolution or anything, but Aquinas was following largely the ancients uh, like, like Aristotle. And um, they did know and believe that all animals died before humans. So there's actually a question where Aquinas um, asks, uh, like, were lions herbivores before the fall? And he says, by no means. He actually calls that, I believe, stultissimus, a most stupid opinion, in his, in his opinion. And I thought it was interesting because I, I kind of, maybe growing up, no one told me this, but I had the impression that, you know, things became carnivorous after the fall. And But it, it was fascinating that a guy 700 years ago uh, was kind of, encapsulating the Christian tradition largely up to that point and saying that, hey, no, I know nature's nature. God made it how it is. The fall ruptured our relationship with it. But, um, you know, canines and animals weren't there in order to chew on vegetables. Uh, canines didn't come into existence after man's fall. They were there millions of years before that. Um, and you know, now we know from the fossil record, right? Like, no, I, I just got a fossil stromatolite, um, mm. which is kind of like the algae burping up, right? It, those are some of Earth's earliest life forms. And it's hard to know how old the one I have is, but those have been around three and a half billion years dying. And now we can we know that and can date it pretty closely. Um, so that's one view anyway. Um, then there is the view that it is sounds traditional, but it's not as traditional. And it's that you know, nothing died until man's fall. And it, admittedly, it's easy to read Paul as saying that. And so that one's tough to square with the science, but that's a view people take. Uh, the third one, and is kind of, this one's a little bit more controversial, but it's actually the one I incline towards. Um, like, uh, you know, I mentioned, I, I read a lot of these recent Catholic popes, John Paul II, Benedict XVI. And I like BioLogos is a cool Christian organization that does a lot of faith in science and things. And what you find reading a lot of these people is they'll say, well, look, humans were probably also dying um, for quite a long time. And, and so actually with human evolution, it's tremendously interesting because the more we go on, we can see that humans have been around at least 200,000 years. We know that for a fact. But then it gets more complicated and fascinating because if you're not sub-Saharan African, you have a couple percent of your DNA from Neanderthals. And well, were Neanderthals rational, right? Did they, mm -hmm. they made art even, they made jewelry, so probably they were rational. And then you can go all the way back 2 million years ago to Homo erectus, upright man. And he's looks like he's making fire. Are you already rational? Point being that this has been going on a long time. So depending on where you place Adam, you can get different results. But here's what I think about it. It is, okay, and this is this third position that I kind of gravitate toward. It's that, okay, if you took the curses of Genesis 3 quite literally, that sweat came after the fall, thorns and thistles came after the fall, pain and childbirth came after the fall, um, this is kind of problematic because thorns and thistles predated man a long time. And even more fundamental, the, the garden being cursed, early man didn't garden. Gardening didn't, you know, we weren't doing agriculture until 10,000 years ago. That's relatively recently. And things like pain and childbirth, you know, having, having a wife who's had a number of children, I wish you could spare them of that, but in, in human evolution, it's just the nature of the beast that 
the human head is so fat. It's so smart that compared to the diameter of the opening out of which it must exit, it's going to cause pain almost in every circumstance. Um, in there, there was, we did baby birth classes years and years ago. There was a doctor who called uh, the first three months of life outside the womb, the fourth trimester, because in, in a sense, they shouldn't be born yet. Uh, but they have to pop them out early because they're so huge, these heads uh, that we know historically, you know, women have died in childbirth. So the, the point would be there that everything we have in our humanity seems to be deeply interconnected with other animals. And it, it, it seems to me really odd to say that we didn't have any suffering because then our nervous system, did it come into existence and all of our nerves get put into place after the fall or did God anesthetize us? So it seems, and this is where I, you know, get into fun arguments with friends on this. Like, it seems to me, if you're going to say humans weren't going to suffer and die, then God had to completely rewire and alter our nature um, hmm. or tornadoes, right? Were tornadoes not going to hit you or lions not going to try to kill you. He would have had to constantly, as my wife says, perform a steady stream of miracles, which he could do. Anyway, those are three views. I clearly gravitate towards the third. Um, the first, at least in the theological circles I run in, is the, you know, it's the most traditional view that everything died and suffered, but man was exempt from it. And then, of course, a Christian can hold that other position that nothing died in, in, until um, human sin. Okay. Yeah. That's super helpful. Dr. Image. Uh, one more question. We'll start to wrap up. Um, we talked a lot about how like Jesus Christ can like make sense of like grounding, like creation um, and like seeing everything through him and like death and the resurrection. Um, so maybe I'm thinking maybe we could talk about like how Christians can like, like, like how should we steward creation? Cause there's a big debate over like animal rights um, and like, like what, what are we supposed to do? Um, so like, how do you think like Christians should steward creation as we move forward? Yeah. Okay, this is so crucial. I'm glad you asked this because it, it's where the practical comes in, right? Okay, so I, I uh, co-direct something called the Center for Integral Ecology at my college, Benedictine College, and uh, it's been a great thing to do the past few years. It, like We're trying to present an integral approach to ecology that takes into account the good of man and the environment. But the fact is, in our secular world, they need Christ because a lot of times environmentalism is frankly anti-human. You know, I don't know if you encounter this, but you'll have people who just think we should get out of the way that man is the curse on the earth. Um, they're, you know, in favor of drastic measures to limit human numbers that are very scary um, in their approaches and, and like a general negativity towards humans. Um, and then sometimes along with that, you see an elevation of animals in such a way that it's it's like they'll be okay with certain innocent humans dying uh, before the womb, outside the womb, et cetera, but you can't touch this eagle's nest. And now nothing against the eagles. I think I just saw a bald eagle on the Missouri River last week. It's unbelievable. Mm. But um, we've got a problem when you favor animals over humans. On the other side, sometimes, eh, you know, fellow believers, we tend to not care about the environment too much. It's more like, let's focus on saving souls. Okay, but then you don't care about creation. I, I was reading a piece by N.T. Wright a couple weeks ago, the great New Testament scholar, and Wright put it really starkly, said, uh, you know, why oil, why change the oil on the engine if it's going to drive off a cliff? Or why wallpaper the house if it's going to be destroyed? His point was, if we just think creation is going to go into annihilation and it doesn't come to heaven and nothing else happens, and the main thing is the spiritual world, then why take effort for creation? So I think the real answer is we, we need creation, though. Uh, we, we not only find God through it, um, it's a path towards union with Christ. Is I mean, our existence on the earth continued for however long Christ deems that to be depends upon taking care of it. But even uh, bracketing the whole bigger debates about, you know, things like climate change and stuff that get controversial, it, it's to me, it's a matter of how do we want to live right now, right? Do I want a bunch of trash out in my yard? Do I want to have healthy water for my kids to drink and not get 
whatever disease from, do I want to have a, a, a beautiful town to be able to go around and contemplate the trees in or, and, and so like even those small incentives, I think should inform how we think about it, but ultimately it's all in Christ and supporting to Christ and remembering that he is God, but that these creatures are his gifts. And so while we are stewards of creation and, and, and even have dominion over it, it should be a dominion of love uh, and a dominion that realizes that the true owner of the vineyard is Christ. And uh, we're just his laborers, right? We're both his children and his laborers. So we have the joyful duty of caring for creation, um, but it's ultimately his. Well, Dr. Image, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate your time um, and everything you do and always enjoy talking with you and I always feel so like refreshed because um, I can see like your zeal for like learning and like trying to understand these things, but also like the practical side of just like love and walking as Christian as a Christian. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, maybe if you could share like maybe like any last thoughts you had and then like, like what's next for you? Like what projects are you working on in the future? Project. So, you know, I did that most recent work on evolution and scripture, and, and that's something I'm still doing constantly and teach and focus on learning. But I, I'm writing as this summer, I'm kind of editing slowly a manuscript. I've been working on a couple of years on this subject. So, um, yeah, I, I think it'll become a, a small book. Uh, and, and it'll be, I think, I don't know the title yet, but it'll probably be something like, and with every creature that is with you from Noah, mm. um, the covenant with creation. So what does that mean? You know, and I, I think that animal rights language on the one hand is not correct. Animals aren't humans. On the other hand, we Christians have to take more effort to look at creation, rejoice and find God in it and do something about our situation to improve the world for the better. And if I think if we see creatures as covenantal partners, among whom we exercise this dominion of love, it changes things. You know, like my cat, I'm not a cat torturer, but when I just thinking my cat's in covenant with me, I treat it a little bit different, you know? Uh, and it's not an it even, it's a her. Um, and, and seeing these creatures as willed by God as part of our lives, they're journeying with us. Uh, so not to overly romanticize it, not to pretend they wouldn't kill you if they could, <laughs> but um, that that they really are willed by God for our sanctification and that we have a, a joyful duty of, of, of bringing them uh, with us. So those are a few final thoughts and uh, we'll see what I come up with, but that's my meditation for this summer. And it has been for a couple of years. Mm, that's awesome. I love that. Uh, well, I'll leave some links down below where people can like follow you, connect with you things like that, Dr. Ramage. And just thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, you too, Zach. All right. God bless. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, this is Here in Apologetics. If you're new, I encourage you to like, subscribe, uh, all that fun stuff. That'd be huge. And if you value what we do, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. Here in Apologetics. Uh, support for as little as a dollar a month, and that'd be huge. But that's it. Have a good one, everyone. 